G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you again at Haggai chapter 2, second and last in this series on the book of Haggai. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open to Haggai chapter 2? We're going to read it, think about what it means and how it applies to us as Christians. We'll also help you to have the outline that's on the service program. Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we can be on Zoom looking at your word. Father, please help us to understand Haggai chapter 2. Help us to understand how it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And please encourage us with its message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are approximately 7,674,000,000 people in the world. 7,674,000,000. Around about 2 billion people identify as Christians. But among those who identify as Christians, the vast majority of them are pretty much nominal they're just christian because they're that's their culture or something like that if you ask them that they wouldn't have they wouldn't have any idea how to trust jesus and be saved Uh, in 2020 there was a study done in france and researchers estimated that the amount of bible believing christians um, gospel believing christians so-called evangelical christians is around about 660 million 660 million Uh, that leaves About 7 billion of the 7.6 billion people in the world who probably don't understand the gospel and trust Jesus. 7 billion. Uh, Meanwhile, in Western countries like Australia, the church isn't uh, expanding and and, and reaching the world and growing and building. The the church is rapidly shrinking. And even at a local level, when you meet Christians... We don't really look like we're about to transform the world, do we? I mean, most of us are struggling to even manage our own lives, to manage our own families, let alone build God's church throughout the world. So how does this make you feel? When you you, you look around at the world, when you see the extraordinary need... When you, when you think of the task that Jesus has given us to, to make disciples of all nations, how, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel overwhelmed. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. I feel like I can barely make a disciple of myself. Jesus says, <clears throat> Play your part in the building of my temple in this world. Build my church. But, but the task just seems way out of reach. And I feel small and incompetent and ill-equipped to make any difference. It, it, it feels to me like an insurmountable problem. Last week, in chapter 1 of the book of Haggai, God spoke to the Jews who had returned from exile. He called on them to rebuild the temple, and they obeyed. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 14? Chapter 1, verse 14, they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. The people have obeyed God. They've started work on the temple. But the thing is, the thing is, the task seems overwhelming. The Jews feel small and incompetent and ill-equipped. They're facing seemingly insurmountable problem after insurmountable problem. 
And so here in chapter 2 of his prophecy, Haggai, what he does, he addresses three of these seemingly insurmountable problems. First problem, the first problem is with the temple itself. The Jews had started work on the temple on the 21st of September, 520 BC, 21st of September. Uh, Now, chapter 2 is the 17th of October. They've been working for about a month. And now suddenly they can see what a massive task it is that they've undertaken. Maybe you've had a an experience a little bit similar to this. You, you took on a project, but as you got into it, you realised it was way more difficult than you anticipated. I just ran into a guy on the street here who started painting his uh, metal fence, and he said, oh, I thought I'd just fix this, and now I've got this enormous fence to do. I didn't realise the project I was taking on. Uh, those of us who were involved with the saga of the property development here at church, we might have a tiny insight into this as well. But imagine... Imagine what it would have been like for the Jews here in Haggai's day. Think back to that temple that Solomon built. He used tens of thousands of slave laborers. He had oceans of gold and silver and bronze provided for by by King David, his dad, and by the nation of of Israel. Solomon brought in the, the most skillful craftsmen from all over the world to help. But now, compare it with the situation in Haggai. You've got a few hundred Jews with no particular skills, and you've got basically zero resources. Just rubble. These people, they're struggling to put food on the table, let let alone cover a temple with gold. It's a month into the project. The Jews look at the ruin that still lies in front of them. They look around at their resources. They think about the previous temple and they think, no way, no way. We're we're not even going to manage a paper and string copy of the original. The beginning of Haggai chapter 2. Have a look with me, Haggai chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? It looks hopeless. It looks pathetic. The task seems overwhelming well God has two things to say through Haggai first he says you don't need to worry about your own strength you may be weak you may have no resources but what you do have is this God is with you so God says trust me and get on with it verse 4 but now be strong Zerubbabel declares the Lord Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God is with them. And then, second, God tells them that this temple will become great. Uh, Do they have no resources? Doesn't matter. 
God has plenty of resources. God owns all the silver and gold everywhere. And God says, what he says he's going to do, he's going to, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake out the resources from heaven and earth and he's going to fill the temple with glory. He's going to fill it with gold. And through this temple, God says, he will bring peace. He'll be reconciled once more to his people. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Okay, can you see what's here in this first section? Can you see this first problem? After a month of work, the Jews realize what a massive and seemingly hopeless task it will be to rebuild the temple. But what does God say? He says, don't worry, I'm with you and I'll provide the resources to make this temple great. Just trust me and get on with it. Historically, God kept these promises. He was with the Jews. They did rebuild the temple. And a couple hundred years later, in the time of the Roman Empire, King Herod then renovated the temple and it did become even bigger and more grand than Solomon's temple. God did shake out the nations and fill his temple with gold. But of course, as Christians, we know that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise here. As Christians, we know that God came to dwell with us, not in a, a building, not in that temple, but in the person of Jesus. And we know that through Jesus, through trusting in him and receiving God's Holy Spirit, we become God's temple now and we look forward to the ultimate temple, the new heaven and earth, where we'll be finally cleansed from sin where we're finally at peace with God, where we will delight in the presence of God forever. God's promises here, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But the point of Haggai chapter 2 is this. It all started here. It all started here with a, with a couple of Jews and a bit of paper, string and duct tape. It started, it started as a group of small Weak and hopeless people who trusted in God's promises and got on with the job. In verse 10, we jump forward another couple of months from the 17th of October to the 18th of December, 520 BC, 18th of December. On, on this day, the 18th of December, the Jews finished the foundation of the temple. And now Haggai deals with a second problem that they were facing. It's a problem with their productivity. Everything they touch seems to turn to dust. Their crops are failing. They're struggling to eke out a living. I mean, here they are in God's promised land. The land of milk and honey. The land where God promised to bless them but they're not experiencing blessing. They're experiencing curse. 
They're experiencing struggle. They're experiencing trouble. Now, Haggai starts off by getting the priests to answer a couple of questions. Uh, questions, about, questions about religious purity. In the Old Testament, God declared that some things were holy. They were consecrated. They were, they were fit to be in his presence. Now, other things were what God called in the Old Testament law clean. That, that is, they were they were kind of neutral. They were fine for everyday use. But then some things were unclean. They were defiled. They were unfit to be in the presence of God. So you had holy and clean and unclean. It was, it was all a vivid, symbolic way of God teaching his people that uh, sin, death, corruption, they, they are not welcome in his presence. They can't stand in his presence. They won't, they won't be in his presence forever. Uh, none of these things will be in heaven. Haggai gets the priests to answer a question, a couple of questions, about, about this system of, of holy, clean and unclean. First question. First question. Can holiness be transferred? Is consecration infectious, so to speak? Uh, to which the answer is no. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Second question. Can uncleanness be transferred? Is uncleanness infectious? To which the answer is yes. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. It becomes defiled. So uncleanness is infectious. A bit like COVID virus. You, you get touched with uncleanness, you become unclean. But holiness is a different story. You can't, you can't catch holiness by having someone sneeze on you. To get holiness, to get holiness, what you need is God and the temple. You need a priest. You need a sacrifice. Well, no wonder then that things are going so badly for the Jews. They've all been infected with uncleanness. And without a temple, there's no way they can be cleansed. There's no way they can be fit to be in God's presence. There's no way they can expect to be blessed in the promised land. These people are unclean and they have been living under the curse of God. But now things are changing. Now the foundation is built. Now the temple is underway. Now the sacrificial system is coming back together. Now the people are being faithful. They're, they're, they're getting on with the job of building the temple. And so God says, from now on, blessing will come. Verse 14. Verse 14, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, give careful, careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. All right. Do you see the second problem? The Jews, they weren't experiencing blessing from God in the promised land. It's like they were under his curse. And, and do you see why? Because they were unclean. But now they're building the temple and the temple is the key. It's through the temple that they can be cleansed. And so now the foundation is built. Blessing is on its way. Again, as Christians, we know that what God says here finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate temple. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice of himself on the cross. It's through Jesus that we can move from unclean in God's sight to being cleansed and consecrated, to being forgiven and, and made fit to be blessed forever in the presence of God. This all points to Jesus. But once again, the point of Haggai chapter 2 is this. It all started here. It all started here with a couple of impoverished Jews pouring the ancient equivalent of a concrete slab. It started as a small group. It started as a group of small, weak and hopeless people who trusted in God's promises and got on with the job. In verse 20, we're still on the same day. The 18th of December, 520 BC. The day the Jews laid the foundation of the new temple. And Haggai deals with a third problem. Now, to understand this problem, we need a bit of background. 500 years earlier, about 1000 BC, God had made a great promise. It was a promise to King David. God promised that someone from King David's line would rule forever. On your outline there, from 2 Samuel, God says... I, uh, says this to King David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This was a big promise. Big promise. Eternal kingship. Problem was, David's ancestors were sinful. Many of them rejected God. Many of them ignored God. Many of them followed idols until finally God rejected them. The Jews were defeated. They were sent into exile, and God overthrew the line of David from the kingship. But just have a look with me on your outline there at how God expressed it. This is from the book of Jeremiah. God was talking to one of the wicked ancestors of David, the man who was ruling at the time, a man called Jehoiachin, on your outline there. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of the Babylonians. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. It looks like another insurmountable problem. God seems to have had enough 
of the line of David. He's, he, he's pulled off the line of David from being a signet ring on his finger. They've lost the promise through their sin. And by 520 BC, it's been nearly 70 years since the Jews had a king from the line of David. What they do have, though, is a governor. He's not a king. He doesn't have a palace or an army or lots of gold or anything like that. He's basically just another impoverished Jew. But he is in the line of David. His name is Zerubbabel. God has a message for Zerubbabel. He says, I've chosen you. And he says this. He says, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. What does it mean? When you know the background, it's clear, isn't it? It means God has not forgotten his promise to King David. Through Zerubbabel, God is going to renew his promise to have a descendant of David rule forever. Not just over Israel, God says here in Haggai chapter 2 that he's going to shake, again, he's going to shake heaven and earth. He's going to shake all the rulers out of heaven and earth and this man will be the ruler of everything. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. Have a look with me on your outline. I'm going to read from a genealogy. And as I read, see if something rings a bell for you. Reading from Matthew chapter 1. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Lots of weird and wonderful names there. But did you notice one name in particular? Did, did you notice Zerubbabel? God did keep, keep his promise to Zerubbabel, didn't he? Uh, through the line of Zerubbabel, God gave us, what does it say? Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the, the, the risen eternal king of heaven and earth. God kept his promise through Haggai chapter 2, to, in, in Jesus. But, but once again, the point of Haggai chapter 2 is this. It all started here, with a bloke who wasn't king of a bunch of defeated, impoverished, ragtag people. It started as a group of small, weak and hopeless people trusted in God's promises and got on with the job. you see what's here then in Haggai chapter 2? As the Jews try to get on with rebuilding the temple, they're they're facing some seemingly insurmountable problems. Uh, The the building task seems overwhelming. Everything's going wrong in their lives, like they're under God's curse. 
And, and there's no king in the line of David. But God has good promises here. He promises that the temple will be great. He promises that the people will be blessed. He promises that the line of David will be restored through Governor Zerubbabel. God makes great promises. And the thing for the Jews to do, it's this. Just get on with it. In all their weakness, in all their frailty, in all their incompetence, with all their struggles, in the face of overwhelming odds, in the face of insurmountable problems, just, just trust God and get on and do the job. Build the temple. Friends, the application for us, it's very simple. As we saw last week, like the Jews in Haggai, we have a temple to build. God's temple now is his spirit-filled people. It's people who trust in Jesus. And this temple is built as each of us plays our part, as we all lovingly speak the truth about Jesus to other people, as we make disciples. Friends, um, like with the Jews in Haggai, this task may seem overwhelming. You might feel weak. You might feel ill-equipped. You might feel incompetent to share the gospel. You might feel just completely unable to play a part in building God's temple. But, but the message of Haggai chapter 2 for us is this. Just get on with it. Uh, don't worry so much about the big picture don't worry about the seven billion people of the world or the, the weakness of the world church. or Don't worry about all that big stuff. And don't worry so much about yourself and your own weakness either. Just leave all of that to God. You just get on with it. Trust Jesus yourself. Commend the gospel to your family and your friends by the way you speak and the way you live. Read the Bible with them. Encourage the Christians in your church, in your little sphere of influence, with all your weakness, with all your struggles, in your little sphere, just get on with it. Build your tiny little section of the temple. I was talking the other day to a mate of mine. He's, he's, a, he's a fairly ordinary bloke, actually quite shy. And he was telling me a fairly ordinary story. One of his sons invited a mate to youth group. And that mate then invited one of his mates. Pretty small. Pretty ordinary. Until I started to think about Haggai chapter 2. What if... What if the 660 million Bible-believing Christians in this world discipled one person like this bloke discipled his son well suddenly we're at 1.32 billion Christians and what if those 1.32 billion people then invited a mate to youth group to hear the good news about Jesus and, and put their trust in him like, like my mate's son did 2.64 billion and, and what if those people then invited one of their friends, like my mate's son's mate did. 
5.28 billion. I know this is not how it works out in real life. I know it's much more difficult than that. But you see the point, don't you? Friends, God can and he does use ordinary people doing ordinary things. Like he did with the Jews here in Haggai chapter 2. God can use small, weak and hopeless people who trust his promises and get on with the job. Do you know what, friend? He can use you. He can use you in the building of his temple. Your small role is a small role in a magnificent and eternal project. So, friends, let's do it. In, In our own little section, in our own little corner, let's get on with the job of building God's temple. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the true temple and that through faith in him we um, are filled with your spirit and become part of your, your temple. Thank you, Father, for giving us a job to do, for, for appointing us to be temple builders. Will you please help us to bravely and faithfully tell other people the truth about Jesus. Help us to disciple our families, our friends. Help us to play our part in the building of your temple. Lord, we acknowledge that we are weak, we are sinful, we are incompetent, we are ill-equipped. But we know that you are the one who does the job and you graciously use us. So, Father, we say, please use us. Give us strength to be temple builders, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.